Okay, and in it, Paul goes on what you could call a Jesus-exalting rant, right? This is one of the greatest Christ-exalting passages in all of the New Testament. And it's provocative to keep in mind that Paul goes on this Christ-exalting rant while he is sitting in prison. Right? Colossians, remember, it's a prison letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail. Um, and what you just heard and saw read was likely what Paul was singing while he sat in prison. Many scholars describe our passage today as a hymn. So Paul is singing this song while he is in prison chains, I think for two central reasons. First of all, Paul really gets Jesus in a way that few, if any of us, do. Listen to how Paul writes about Jesus elsewhere. In Philippians 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed him, on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Corinthians, he writes, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death and sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul crafts this hymn, as well as that one from Philippians 2, while he's in prison, and he's singing these lyrics while most of us would be singing something like gloom, despair, and agony on me, right? Because he gets Jesus in a truly extraordinary way. You remember he had that um, blinding encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He may have had other encounters with the risen Christ as well, it seems. And Paul was stunned by Jesus. He gets him. This is why he writes like this. This is why we study his writing to recalibrate what we think about Jesus based on Paul's song that he's written here today. Now, there's a second reason that I think he writes like this about Jesus in this letter, and I've alluded to that, and that's because the Colossian church was being pressed to embrace a diminished view of who Jesus was a view that required a Jesus plus something else kind of theology. And you pick up on this in chapter 2, as we'll see. It goes like this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. One writer said that what they were being taught in Colossae did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but not necessarily the supreme place. And Paul saw how dangerous 
This diminished view of Jesus was that made him less than who he really was and was anchored in the teaching of men, not in the teaching of of scriptures. And so he warns them, and he he would write a similar warning to his friend Timothy in just a couple years. He said, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So Jesus, or Paul exalts Jesus like this for the sake of the church. Then and now, who has always faced tempting and confusing less, lesser views of Jesus? So this hymn then, Paul wrote, for Christ's glory and for our good. And you can think of this hymn for our purposes today of having three verses, right? The first verse is about Jesus being greater out there, right? In creation, Jesus is greater. The second verse, Paul writes about Jesus being greater in here, in the church. And lastly, he writes about Jesus' great reconciling work of all of these things. So, um, look with me down at verse 15 of chapter 1 of Colossians, where Paul begins out there, showing that Jesus is greater than anything else in all of creation. And he starts with these two powerful and kind of puzzling declarations about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And each of those are really important and kind of puzzling. Because how do you image something invisible? That's kind of a puzzle in and of itself, isn't it? And the Bible repeatedly teaches God is spirit. He's not seeable to our eyes. He's he's invisible. We are told in John 1 that it's because of that teaching that Jesus came so he could show us the Father. No one, it says, has ever seen God. But the only God, a reference to Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And Jesus himself would say in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the basic idea is this. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the spitting image of God the Father, we might say. Not in appearance, but in character, nature, essence, Purpose, glory, things like that. And he came for this very reason, to show us what the Father is like. Again, hear Jesus' own words. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And Paul drives this shared identity of Jesus and God. He drives it home repeatedly in the book of of Colossians. A little later in our passage, he's going to say again, For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In chapter 2, he'll say it again. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When you press this all together, it becomes clear what Paul is saying. Jesus doesn't just show us God. He is God. To see Jesus is to see God because Jesus is God. As one writer put it helpfully, but it also has a puzzle to it. Jesus is everything the Father is, except for being the Father, right? This points 
towards our second question because Paul says not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation. Does that mean that Jesus was created? That he was part of creation? Um, this is what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. Or rather, are we to believe what the creeds have taught since forever? The Nicene Creed of 325 AD reads this way. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. So was Jesus created in a word? No. Okay? That's precisely what Paul is not saying here. The idea of a, first, a firstborn in Scripture can surely mean born first. But it can also carry the idea of preeminence or being exalted or more important or above. You, you pick that up in a psalm about King David. Psalm 89, verse 27 says, I will make him, King David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the first king. That second phrase explains the first. Firstborn here means highest, the most exalted. And that is the sense that firstborn is being used of Jesus here. It's not that he was the first thing ever made. It's that he's exalted far above all things that have ever been made. And the next verse makes that explanation clear. Look at verse 16. For by Jesus all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, so clearly, Jesus is not a part of creation. Rather, he is a part from creation because he made everything that is in creation. Right? Literally, all that has been made, Jesus made. From the bulk of Mount Everest to the microscopic cells that make up the stuff of your body, Jesus made it all. And that's what Paul intends when he uses this heaven and earth language, right? He made heaven, he made earth, and the idea is everything in between. The same idea with visible and invisible. That pretty much captures everything, right? If he made what's visible and he made what's invisible, that's kind of everything, right? And then he expands on this invisible stuff. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And this language describes spiritual realities. Think angels and demons and their systems and structures that they work through and such. Um, this may have been a temptation for the Colossian church to worship these entities instead of or alongside Christ. Look, jump ahead with me to chapter 2, verse 18. Paul says to them, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So Paul expands on this because this was an issue for them probably. Paul is pointing out here the abject folly of worshiping the creation when you can worship the creator. Think of it like this. If you want to go hear Adele in her concert series that's coming up, uh, I believe it's coming up, Weekends with Adele, her tour, um, advance 
prime tickets will cost you above $40,000 a ticket, okay? Um, so if that was on your agenda, that's on your bucket list, you might have to rethink that one. But here, think of it this way, imagine this. Rather than going, paying 40,000 to go see her, I'm assuming those are front row tickets, if not on stage with a microphone singing with her for $40,000. But imagine instead of doing that, you pay $40,000 to go over to a friend's house and listen to her CD. Yeah, yeah. That's what worshiping angels or anything in creation is like. It's like paying concert front row seat concert prices to listen to a CD when you could go hear the musician in person, like a house concert even, up close and personal. And this is kind of where Paul goes with the next lyric he has in verse 17. He says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And scholars say when he's before all things, the idea is that he, he existed before all things. Before anything was made, Jesus or, or Christ the Son was. He existed before all things. And, and, who, and who existed before all things except God, right? And this idea, kind of like that firstborn idea, also has the idea that he's preeminent because he is so first before all things. He exists before creation. He created creation. And now, Paul says, he holds creation together. Some have said Jesus is the glue of the universe. He didn't create the world and walk away. No, he's actively preserving it, holding it together. We think of that in terms of like gravitational forces and such. But behind those forces is a force named Jesus holding the universe together. And this probably was of great significance personally for the Colossians. Um, historians tell us around 60 to 61 AD, there was a huge earthquake in this area that devastated the city of Colossae. It never really recovered, and a, and a number of people lost their lives. And about the same time, either just before that earthquake or almost simultaneous with it or right after Paul wrote these words to the Colossians, reassuring them that Jesus is holding it all together, even as the foundations of the earth are shaken. Pastor Sam Storm says, this world is a cosmos rather than a chaos because of the continuous exertion of divine power from the risen Christ. And Paul said it from every possible angle. All things were created by Jesus. He's the firstborn of creation. He created heaven and earth, visible, invisible, dominions, rulers, authorities, powers. All things were created by him and through him and for him. He's the beginning and the end of creation and he holds all of creation together. Jesus is, Paul's saying, is supreme out there. He's Lord of all creation. He's the creator God. We should fall down and worship him in the greatest of awe. There's a theologian, a former past theologian named Abraham Kuyper, and kind of his legacy quote is about this. He says, 
No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Jesus is Lord of all that exists. So this week, take a moment. Maybe this afternoon when you've got a little downtime, take a moment. Go somewhere beautiful. Garden. Joiner Park, and bow down, maybe even kneel down, and worship Jesus who made it and holds it all together. Theologian Douglas Moo says, Paul makes the startling claim here that a man who had, been, who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things are held together. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to, to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. Jesus is Lord of creation, all of it. And then Paul now starts the second verse, and he turns his focus in here. In this room, right? In every room where the church is gathered. And he declares that just as Jesus is Lord over creation, he's Lord over the church too. Verse 18, he says it simply, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus is Lord here, right? Not the pastor, not the elders, not some pope, not you, Jesus. And so his preference matters more. His commands are to be followed. His pleasure is the most important thing because he's the head of the church. And Paul continues. He says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so there's that language of firstborn again, the firstborn this time from the dead. Again, Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead. Remember, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead when he was on this earth. But he is the first of a tidal wave of resurrections that are to come. He's like the first domino in a domino effect of resurrections. His resurrection makes ours sure and that of all those who believe in his name. Paul links our resurrection with Jesus' resurrection in a kind of backhanded way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he says they're inseparable. Christ's resurrection is the first domino. If that falls, they're all falling. His resurrection makes our resurrection sure. So he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This resurrection um, power makes him preeminent because it reveals him to be God in God's fullness. Resurrection's God's territory. It's God's work. And Jesus is Lord over resurrection territory. 
That's verse 2. Jesus is Lord of creation, and now he's Lord of the church. And in the last verse, Paul transitions to Jesus' great reconciling work on the cross. The reconciliation of both church and creation to a right relationship with God. Look at verse 19. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the great reconciler of all things to God by his work on the cross. Men and women and boys and girls are reconciled to God. Creation itself is reconciled to a right relationship to God. And that's been puzzling to some again, and it raises this question in some minds. If all things are reconciled to Jesus by his cross work, does that mean that all are saved by his cross work? Okay. And in a word, no. Okay. That would be at odds with everything that the rest of Scripture, where it speaks with clarity about those who will not be reconciled to God in that way. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So how is it then that Jesus' death on the cross reconciles all things to himself? And there's a couple of different ways to, to think about that. Some have said um, that the, the immediate context, he's talking about the church, right? Jesus said of the church. And so all things here may refer to all things that God has chosen to reconcile, all people he's chosen to reconcile. And that is Paul's immediate context here. But I'm more inclined to think of a second way about it, that rather than having a narrower understanding of all things here, what the better way to understand is to have a broader understanding of what is meant by reconciled. Reconciled here seems to mean restored to a proper relationship to God, as in restored in a right relationship to his authority, in submission to his authority, no longer in rebellion to his authority. It's like what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that passage we looked at earlier. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Some will bow gladly, some not so much. But all will bow because of the work Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection in restoring order to the cosmos. Right? A couple of um, scholars had really helpful ways to say this. Douglas Moo says, through the work of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. David Garland says, the image of the invisible God entered the plane of human experience in order to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by means of his humiliating death. Jesus makes peace by his cross work. The rebellion is put down by his cross work, though its ultimate fulfillment waits for his return. So Paul helps us see now how this great reconciling work that, that he's talking about applies to you and me, to those who believe. And when Paul writes, he likes to do these kind of things 
using before and after language. You're familiar with it. It's a, it's a popular marketing technique. It looks like this, right? Before and after. Ain't no way that's the same guy. I am his age. I ain't no way that's the same guy. Now, this one I believe. This next one, that one's real. Uh, that's definitely true, and I, I believe that one. Um, Jesus, though, in, in this passage, does an even greater transformation. The before and the after are stunning spiritually. Look at verse 21 and 22 with me. You who were once, here's the, here's the before, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, and here's the after, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That, that before picture is pretty awful. Alienated from God, totally estranged from him, no relationship. We aren't even in speaking terms with God. Hostile in mind, our thoughts are opposed to his ways, unable and unwilling to, to think what pleases him and doing evil deeds, shameful stuff. I, I came to Christ early. I came to Christ at 17. And even at that early age, I don't like to think about the BC days. They're, they're full of shameful stuff. That's before. But the contrast with after, it's, it's even more stunning than the, than the old fat guy in the bodybuilder image that I just showed you. By Jesus' work on the cross, we who hope and trust and love Jesus go from alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, to holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, Pastor Sam Storm says, notice again the words before him. This is incredibly encouraging to struggling Christians to think that we, will stand in God's presence regarded by him as above reproach. That is to say, as people against whom no legitimate charge can be brought is breathtaking. Note well, he says, it is before him, face to face with infinite righteousness. That is the verdict that will be rendered. Our future, our after rather, is holy without blame, beyond reproach. So pause with me and, and look in the mirror just for a minute. Which of those portraits best describes you spiritually speaking? The before one or the after one? And it's important to know that Paul says the transformative difference as to how you stand before God and are seen by Him, he says it twice, it's faith in the bloody cross work dying of Jesus, where He spilled His life's blood to bear the penalty for our sins, dying in our place, as it were. So Jesus is literally, literally offering you the afterlife of freedom from the burden of bearing your own sins and their penalty forever and ever and ever. Why would you not say yes to that today? Say yes to being free from your sins and their penalty today. 
And then Paul ends this little hymn in a surprising way. I wouldn't have expected this. It contains a bit of a warning. He says in, in verse 23, continuing the thought that you will be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he attaches a condition of sorts to the hope of reconciliation and the afterlife, right? Um, if you don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, then that's the after picture. Um, and this can be puzzling when it's put up against the clear Christian teaching that the grace and mercy of God is a free gift, wholly undeserved. And so theologians have kind of wrestled with this uh, since time immemorial and had different ways to explain how do these two ideas live together? And they are all over the scriptures, right? Salvation is an unconditional gift, but we must persevere in it. And the perspective that's common, uh, most likely probably you would hear taught here at North Wake, is a simple one, that true Christians will in fact persevere in the hope of the gospel. We won't ultimately forsake that hope. We are kept by Christ himself in it. So when someone who has professed faith in Christ walks away from that hope, it would raise the question if they'd ever really truly hoped in Christ at all, or if they had just gone through the Christian motions, which are so very common in our culture even to this day. So Paul sings for us a hymn of the absolute lordship of Jesus over creation and over the church and how he's going to reconcile all things to himself. How is that with you? Would you gladly say today, I believe that Jesus is Lord of all, even of me? And there's no one that I've encountered who gives a more beautiful and powerful invitation to know this Jesus uh, than a pastor from San Diego, California. He's, he goes by S.M. Lockbridge. He's now with Jesus. But uh, there are pastors, of which I am one. There are great teachers, and then there are preachers. S.M. Lockbridge was a remarkable preacher and I try to show this every few years. I'd like to show it about every other week. It's one of the most beautiful invitations to know this exalted Jesus that I ever heard. And I'd like us to close our time um, by listening to it together and, and receiving this invitation to know Jesus first or better. So if you'll stand, let's just stand and receive this invitation from Pastor Lockbridge to know Jesus, this Jesus. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages.